0: Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood. RoomNow.com. We're here at the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposia. Artie, that's called what? RWCS. It's our 14th year. There you go. So it's been a very good week. RWCS uh, has been a live on-site meeting and a streaming meeting to those of you out in the netherworld. Um, exciting meeting. So in this week's edition of the Room Mile podcast, we're actually going to do a recap of RWCS 2021. Marty, um, uh, give us a a general impression of the meeting overall.
1: Overall, of of course, I have a a bit of a bias. I have a dog in this fight, but I think it's been great. I think it's really exciting to hear how many new things there are really across rheumatology, across diseases, across diagnosis
0: and prognosis, and of course, especially regarding therapies. And um, it's been thrilling to actually show that we can be back in the medical meeting business again, that we can have live meetings. Uh, the audience, uh, we have a lower a low number of people are here. They're appropriately spaced. Everybody's wearing a mask. But we're still in a meeting location. We get to be with colleagues, talk to the speakers, have lunch with the speakers. It's been really exciting. And yet we've still had some of our great speakers, you know, Eric Ritterman and Marty Bergman and uh, Alexis Ogde and others, you know, beaming in and being an active participant in the meeting. I think it's, it's very uh, refreshing that maybe um, we're turning the corner on how we're going to be continue our education in rheumatology.
1: Yeah, it's tricky, and it's taken a lot of work by the technicians who have done an outstanding job of bringing together uh, speakers who are remote and speakers who are live for an audience that's remote and also an audience that's live. And uh, it's, I think, actually a lot trickier than doing either a fully live meeting or a fully virtual meeting.
0: Yeah. So we have three out of the four meeting days under our belt. I thought we'd review some of the highlights of this meeting. Already in day one, you and I started the the, the meeting off with a, a rheumatoid arthritis year in review. Um, and uh, again, a lively discussion. I think one of the things that I got a lot of questions about afterwards was our coverage of the whole steroids uh, issue in RA. We had um, the Samira study that showed whether or not you should wean off prednisone or stay on prednisone and yeah you can wean off but you do better if you stay on prednisone with an RA and then two other studies showing that even five milligrams or less carries an infectious risk and a cardiovascular risk sort of ruining our ideas that really low doses don't matter too much but still steroids are big in the conversation um what's your feeling on that
1: yeah i think that's true and it's true across diseases one of the other presentations that we highlighted was from uh, iceland the ice bio which showed that this is isn't just a u.s thing that rheumatologists across the world use corticosteroids and we'd like to think that we get all of our patients off but we don't we still use lower doses of them and then today in the case presentations Everybody was on corticosteroids, it seems, at some point in their presentation. And that's, I think, the ongoing discussion. Is there a dose that can be potentially safer than some of the alternatives that we might have for an individual disease state?
0: Yeah, I think some of that is real need. I think that, you know, these diseases are complex and need combinations of therapies, but they're. I think there's got to be some percentage of patients in there where we're just forgetting and getting a little too lazy, a little too complacent, and we're continuing even that low dose of steroids when maybe we shouldn't mm-hmm. be on that. You know, Michelle Petrie and others in the lupus world are saying they don't really need steroids to manage, you know, difficult disease anymore. We have enough treatment um, options that maybe we can get beyond that. And if you're going to use expensive therapies like TNF inhibitors, like in the ice bio, maybe you should be able to get off.
1: That should be the goal for sure. Yeah.
0: What else did you like from our session in the review session?
1: Well, I think the safety issues are always uh, great in great importance because it's easy to cover a randomized control trial. The data are the data. You see how well a drug works. Safety is trickier. You get a little bit of information from the studies, and we talked about the select choice, which compared two different mechanisms head-to-head, a jackinib and a T-cell inhibitor. But then the other issues that came up, and sometimes you don't have the answer, which is great to discuss in a format like this where you get with your colleagues and say, what do you think of these data? And that's the uh, data from the jackinib about do they have a signal for uh, cardiac events, for malignancy, for venous thromboembolic disease, uh, an important and evolving story.
0: Yeah, it seems like it just keeps coming out in drips. You know, we got first the thromboembolic wrist drip, and now we got a, there's maybe a mace, a major adverse cardiac event drip, and now there's a cancer story. But the FDA is not telling us the data, they're saying they're looking at it, and In the meantime, what are we supposed to do? I think we still just have to wait and see what happens. Again, this was a long-term, you know, it was a five-year, six-year safety study of, you know, thousands of patients at high risk over the age of 50 with a cardiovascular risk Mm -hmm. factor. Um, So it's not surprising some of these things happen, but it is surprising that it's come out this way. The other thing I liked about the safety that you covered was the, um, is the risk of lymphoma? actually changing over time with better control. So, you know, the old data that was reviewed by the FDA in 2003 showed that RA patients are at higher risk of lymphoma, and, uh, but not nearly at a higher risk of cancers, um, and that RA patients going to TNF inhibitors are also at the same higher risk, but that historic data showed that that risk was often uniquely related to activity. And then this new report from the Swedish registries showed that over time in recent years that the SIR, the standardized incidence ratio, has in fact gone down. Got closer to one, suggesting that if you do control inflammation, maybe you do lower lymphoma risk.
1: Well, And it's important for us in rheumatology. It's also important in GI. Uh, IBD is, in many ways, every bit as bad as RA in terms of these bad outcomes that are associated with active disease. And if you take away the activity disease, the patient should be better, and maybe we can avoid some of the toxicities, like the increased risk for lymphoma.
0: Yeah. Which which else did you like uh, from uh, the sessions?
1: So the first day, what I really liked is a presentation by Dr. Anna Postolova, who's a rheumatologist and also an allergist immunologist. And she participated remotely, but we were able to really discuss things a lot. And that was a presentation on IVIG. Uh, and Although it's IVIG, uh, it, it's some incredibly practical information about differences in the preparations and theoretical constructs. And But one of the things I thought was most interesting is that one of the things they're doing with IVIG as replacement is they're actually using it sub-q. Mm-hmm. And that's much easier. Uh, potentially could be much more cost-effective than doing it intravenously. And I'd like to see the uses of... of IGG of uh, given subcutaneously to see if that might work for a disease like myositis, where I think all of us believe it can work.
0: Yeah, I mean we covered both at uh, ACR and and also on room now the the results of the recent trial, head-to-head placebo-controlled trial, uh, showing that IVIG really does work in dermatomyositis. I think. Uh, Anna's lecture sort of helped to demystify a lot of what's around IVIG. I think the, and knowing where it works helps, I think it still would help if we had a little better definition of where exactly it should be used over steroids or instead of steroids or instead of a particular immunosuppressive, but uh, it was a really, I think the audience liked it because it it gave them, I think, a better uh, level of confidence with that. um, I liked, um, there were a few presentations both from ACR and we discussed here on machine learning. Mm -hmm. You know, machine learning seems to be taking on a bigger role in medicine and certainly in rheumatology where it's all about how you handle big data sets and can you um, analyze big data sets in a way through artificial intelligence that will help inform better decision making. So, you know, there there, there were machine learning studies about, better use of DMARD choices, and, and machine learning on imaging and spondylitis. What do you think of those? Yeah,
1: I think it's in, in complex heterogeneous diseases, like almost all rheumatic diseases, there's not quite a simple answer. So I think we need uh, different approaches that will take as much data as possible to try to make the best decisions for the choice of therapy. And the imaging, I, I think that's, that's coming. I can't imagine that that's not coming. We're, uh, our radiologists may be in for a tough time because I'm not sure that, the, that we'll need as many of them if the machines become good enough to read it and for us to give a scoring system where we're looking for very small differences to see if a disease is progressing and uh, machine learning would be
0: very important for that. That's something we, we, we miss clinically. I'm, I'm at odds with a lot of our uh, rheumatology brethren on the issue of x-rays and imaging, I don't do them. I do them to establish diagnosis, to establish disease state and have a baseline. I don't do repeated annual uh, imaging. I I don't do much in the way of MR. And my main gripe there is um, uh, I'm good at those things, looking at them, but I'm not not formally trained. I can't score them. I usually don't have the old x-rays around. But to have, again, a computer that can actually do the reading and score it for me in a a truly um, uh, reliable manner, could be a major advance in medicine.
1: When I was a a resident, I I, I trained with uh, uh, Dr. Lidsky in Houston, and he was a brilliant man and just a professor, old gentleman. And he is the other person on the article with John Sharp. So the Sharp score is really the Sharp-Lidsky score, but as John Sharp once told me, Martin didn't like to write. Um, but every year he would get x-rays on all of the patients. And he, so he followed them over time. Now, we don't do that as much, but i got to say, in the clinic, sometimes I'll see someone and I haven't gotten an x-ray in five years. And it's a lot worse, and the problem is I don't know when it got worse. Mm -hmm. And I try to make treatment decisions, and uh, if they've always been bad, then I say, well, they're always bad, doesn't matter. But sometimes I say, gosh, I wish I had some x-rays in between. And with machine learning, I would really say, well, then I'll be able to treat it as data. That, yes, this is
0: worse, not just really grossly worse, like we would pick up looking at the x-rays ourselves. Uh, through Artie I got to meet Dr. Martin Litsky He was a pistol He was pithy and insightful And you, when you were with him You knew you were going to learn something And he made sure of that I think I'd have Dr. Litsky over at machine learning any, any day <laughs> um, so on day two, there was this uh, uh, great presentation by, um, I guess it was uh, uh, Alexis Ogdi and Eric Ritterman about etanercepts use in um, non-radiographic axial spa. So we have three drugs currently approved for non-radiographic axial spa, sertolizumab, Secukinumab, ixekizumab, and now Etanercept throwing its ring into the hat with a well-designed trial showing that it worked. And then they confused me by doing the next study showing that etanercept didn't work in something called pre-spa. Uh, and the, defi- the definition, the difference being that the non-radiographic axial spas um, had inflammatory back pain, the clinical symptoms you needed, but they either had an MRI, evidence of esticulitis, or um, uh, an elevated CRP, but a normal regular X-ray film as far as the SIs. But in the pre-spa patients, they only met clinical criteria, mm-hmm. but didn't have any MR or CRP. and But it tells us then, in that situation, the importance of either the MRI, or CRP if you're going to call someone a non-radiographic axial spa.
1: Well, I think they, they summed it up nicely, and I think some of us thought, as the agency, the US, US FDA, was worried that uh, non-radiographic axial spa wasn't a thing, and that they didn't like the idea that it was pre-ankylosing spondylitis, and it turns out that it's not. And actually, uh, Eric showed nicely, if you look, they've quite, there's, it's a, a easy to distinguish People who don't have X-ray changes but really have the disease and they respond to TNF inhibitors. But if you if you go a little bit lighter on the definition, you can have people who really don't benefit from TNF inhibitors. So I think we're 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 saying that non-radiographic axial spa is a thing. Radiographic axial spa is what we call ankylosing spondylitis. Pre that you get into trouble and you can't over uh, based on softer clinical criteria than so someone just
0: having inflammatory back pain. This, but this is a hot area in rheumatology. There's pre lupus, there's preclinical RA, you know, and, and, and the hot topic is should you treat them or should you not? And I think right now the jury is out, which leads me to believe manage the symptoms, but don't start treating them as if they have the disease. Okay. And I think
1: something else uh, that we, and I have to say it was a little bit fortuitous because we have some excellent pediatric rheumatologists here at the meeting, Dr. Susan Chenoy and Dr. Ann Stevens. And last year, uh, as we we're putting together the topics, we said, well, you know what, macrophage activation syndrome, always an interesting topic that adult rheumatologists don't know enough about, and HLH, and then COVID happened. And so this became like about the hottest topic uh, that I think we've had, and and they did a great job of of reviewing that and shedding light, and also raising questions about the cytokine release syndrome and the Kawasaki-like disease that they, that we see, the MIS-C, uh, crazy important area. And I think we're going to learn more about our diseases, about our treatments, from following the COVID story.
0: Yeah, I I'd encourage the audience to look at that video. Uh, at rwcs.com, um, when when already posted it up, it's really a great talk about HLH and MAS. The overlap, they're pretty much the same. Um, there are some genetic susceptibilities there. There's new. Clear guidance on what the diagnostic criteria are, and then they really well outline the, um, the the treatment options that are available there. So, this is still a big area. You know, the systemic JIA patients and adults stills they're much higher risk for MAS than really uh, any other causes of MAS. So, rheumatologists do have to know about this. Um, and I want to say that Anne gave a great... She was the kahuna. That means that she's our Teacher of the Year, Anne Stevens. She did a fabulous lecture on the history mm-hmm. of pediatric rheumatology that was, I thought, just breathtaking, um, showing how um, a few very concerned, well-intentioned, very smart pediatric rheumatologists can get together and make all the major advances um, that we now realize and, and live with today uh, in rheumatology. Um Uh, What should we end with? I I, I almost say that we should end with a a comment about the ACR guidance that came out this week about vaccinations. You know, yeah, it's a a tough issue. do Do you got an hour? Yes. We got, no, we got four minutes. So um, so the ACR, uh, led by Jeff Curtis, uh, who was the lead of the task force, they did a tremendous job in two months in trying to review the non-data that's available, but come, come up with uh, expert opinions on how our patients should be managed with regard to the vaccine. They said everybody should get the vaccine. Um, and, they, and they basically said that you shouldn't change uh, any of their DMARD therapies, and it's safe to continue almost all therapies, uh, with the exception of very few. So it's okay to still be on IL-6 inhibitors and um, uh, TNF inhibitors and methotrexate. And, no, not, not methotrexate, all yeah. other DMARDs. But they gave an asterisk for methotrexate, JAK inhibitors, abatacept, and rituximab. Oh. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the old saying, Lord, protect us from people with good intentions. That they, I think... No meant, data. They meant well, but there is no data. And by putting this out there, I, I think it actually puts us in a tough spot. And Aaron and Trom commented on that, that, well, this is out there. Now, it's not a guideline, but gosh forbid something happened to a patient who didn't stop their tofacitinib for one week before and one week after. Uh, and the reason to hold methotrexate for two weeks after, which they didn't get right... And the rituximab is that that you'll get a lesser response, presumably, to this vaccine, although those data are from influenza. Um, I I think that they should have just ended with try to get your patients vaccinated and use your best judgment about what to do with the therapies and maybe point out the older data, which is either from influenza
0: vaccine or from pneumococcal vaccine. Not entirely relevant. Yeah, uh, the only data about metho- uh, a good data about methotrexate yes. blunting responses—not completely, but partially and variably—a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and so and, and also variably. So that's why Park did the study showing that you should hold it for two weeks after the influenza. Yes. But again, good intentions went awry when they yeah. start extrapolating that to this situation. especially when you have to do two dose injections for the COVID vaccine, yeah. uh, and then they. I think they went over um, the line with extending that to abitacip and JAK inhibitors, which I don't get at all, and I'm not going to practice that myself. Again, they are very clear to say that there's a dearth of evidence here and that they, you have to use good clinical judgment in what you do. Talk to your colleagues, talk to the patients, make the best decision possible.
1: Maybe one, one happy note. And for anyone interested in diet, and everybody's interested in diet because all patients are, uh, Dr. Trump did a very nice review and actually, especially a lot at this past ACR meeting, was a lot of, a lot of controlled studies in diet manipulation and various outcomes in various rheumatic diseases. Uh, there's something there. I was actually um, pleasantly surprised that yeah. maybe you could even give recommendations that in that way to your patients because the Lord knows they want them.
0: Right. And and if you can make evidence based recommendations on diet, you're now king of the hill in rheumatology in your community. So anyway, that's it for this week's podcast. Tune in next week for more. Go to rwcs.com, That's R dash W dash C dash S dot com for these videos and more.